So we're going to talk about Korah today. All right, he's found in three places. There's three Korahs that, that the um, commentators have shared. One is in Genesis 36, 5. We're not going to look at him. But he's simply mentioned as the third son of Esau. Number 16 is the Korah we're going to look at. He's the Levite who conspired with Dathan and Abiram against Moses. And interestingly, he was a cousin of Moses and Aaron. And yet he conspired against them. Sometimes happens, unfortunately, in families. And there's one in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 43, that says he's the eldest of four sons of Hebron, of the family of Caleb and the tribe of Judah. But let's look at what we have here in, in Numbers chapter 16. You've got a, an outline there. You can just see how the outline fits. The conspiracy, the complaint, and the destruction uh, really goes through verse 35. I don't have the correct verse down there. But this is God's word, and it's an important, important thing for us just to recognize. Chapter 16 of Numbers, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Issar, son of Joath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with the number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. That's as we put together, here comes the conspiracy. They talk about that. Now we talk about their complaint, verse 3. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And Moses heard it. He fell on his face. He said to Korah and all his company, In the morning, the Lord will show who he is, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all his company. Put fire in them, and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord? to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers the sons of Levi with you and would you seek the priesthood also therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together what is Aaron that you grumble against him and Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram the sons of Eliab and they said we will not come up is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they and Aaron, let every one of you take a censer and put incense on it. Every one of you bring before the Lord a censer, 250 censers. You also and Aaron, each his censer. So every man took a censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them. And stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses 
Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared in all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose, and he went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby shall you know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, and then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up households, and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, the earth closed over them, and they perished in the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up! And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Well, that's really encouraging, isn't it? go through this sermon today, I'm not here to make you bow down to me or to our elder team or any other majestic leadership team. This is just a Bible passage. God has this story, this true story in it for us to read, for us to think about, and for us to make application. I think as you understand and as Moses is leading the children of Israel, the people of Israel, there's probably at least a million of them. There's lots and lots and lots of them. And you can imagine that in those million people, you can imagine that all of them had opinions that were expressed to him or to other leaders or behind his back amongst the people. This first little section here that there are those who will not agree with it, and there's those who will even object to a leader's leadership. And when they do that, many will talk behind their back. Many of you have experienced that in your jobs, in your work. You've seen it happen among you. They get a following. They got a burr in the saddle, as they say, right? They got something that really bothers them. And they get a following. They gather a group of people. And then they take that and they go to this person, to this leader, and they ambush him with it. Happened to me back in 1979. And I've told this story before. Leading the college career class in my church. I was invited to our cabinet meeting. We had a cabinet of men. 
together to lead it. And I'm invited to that, and I walk into the pastor's office, which is a good size office, and there's about 20 of my friends sitting all around, and I was just totally confused. And pretty soon they started going around one by one and telling them what they didn't appreciate about me. Hmm. Had no idea that was coming. I was just doing, trying to follow the Lord as a volunteer, ministry partner, wasn't getting paid for it. Just taking it on, felt God had called me to it. He had allowed me to do that, and all of a sudden, I find out that they had these things. It was pretty devastating to a 22-year-old guy. But it happened. It's probably happened to you. Positions that you've been to experience something like that. And we know this. We think about Moses. Moses was divinely appointed by God to lead his people. We know from Exodus chapter 3, God speaking to him at the burning bush. He was the one to lead the people. God had put his approval. You're to lead. You, your brother Aaron, are to lead the people. And we know that he didn't do it always perfectly. We know from our study of Jethro back in October of 18 or, or in um, June of June 18, we know from that study in Exodus chapter 18 that he needed a little bit of help. As his father-in-law comes alongside and says, you need some help. You're going to wear out. You're going to burn out. We'll appoint some men over the divisions, over the people, so that they can handle some of the things that you don't have to handle at all. And what did he do? He did it. That's good advice. And he did it, and he, he, he opened up so that he could be relieved of some of the duties, and that God allowed him to be able to do that. But he was divinely appointed by God to lead the people. Now, I would assume that in this leadership position, even with his chiefs that were over things, I would assume there that he was getting feedback about how things were going. They're going to bring you know, the word back be a part of their lives. That's one of the reasons in as we set up our elder team, I'm on that as a pastor, but five of our elders are you. They're part of the body. And the reason for that is so that we hear feedback, because I don't always hear the feedback personally, but oftentimes it'll come back through the men. This is something to think about. These are some things we should do. These are some considerations that we can it's purposeful to be able to do that so we can hear back and we can respond and grow with one another. A number of times I've heard this statement made. Um, I've not heard it, but I've read about it, and it does happen. It could be voiced by a longtime church member. It's, it hasn't happened here to me, but it's happened in churches. A longtime church member speaks to a pastor when tension arises and says something like this. I was here before you came, and I'll be here a long time after you leave. I'll tell you what, man, that makes a pastor want to get church staffing that night to go find another job. I was here a long time before you came, and I'll be here a long time after you are gone. That type of ownership sta statement will have a pastor looking job really quick like and it'll mean that a church has a new pastor about every three or four 
that's not good for a church. That is not healthy for a church. Praise God, I've never heard that statement given to me. Thank you. Thank you. And I've outlasted most of you. <laughs> After 21 years. It's been a good 21 years. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I love you. So, thank you. I will be gone this week, so no complaints, okay? You see, here's the thing. Korah and their men were part of the Levitical ministry to take care of the tabernacle. They had a job. They had a servant. They had a ministry. But they weren't satisfied with that. They wanted to be priests like Aaron. And that's not what God called them to do. I want to remember, remind you of this. If you have an issue with a leader or an individual, it doesn't matter. Jesus says in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 that you are to go to that individual and to talk to them before you bring your 250 people. Go and share with them. But don't ambush them. And that goes for your workplace. The same thing. It's, it's, a, it's a principle. It's a good leadership Jesus has given to it because he knows that's the best way to handle it. I don't know how Korah got his following, but I'm guessing that he didn't approach Moses and Aaron first. Because all of a sudden he shows up with 250. Secondly, there are times to be discerning about a leader's leadership. We talked about this in Thursday mornings men's group. We talked about the upcoming sermon and they gave me lots of really good ideas and good feedback as I give them what I've got so far. There are times to be discerning about a leader's leadership. Is it congruent? Does it agree with the Word of God? Good question to ask. Is it directed by the Holy Spirit? Um, are there questions that can be asked about it? And questions that can be answered about it. Is there clarity to it? Appropriate questions can be helpful when done in accordance with Jesus' command in Luke chapter 6, 31. You might know this verse. Ring, ring any bells yet? It's called the golden rule. As you wish others would do to you, do so to them. As you have questions, as they're concerned, approach them like you would want to be approached. Not with, I can't believe what you're doing. As they said, what did they say? You have gone too far, Moses and Aaron. And we don't like it. That's not a good way to get a good conversation going. Right? So, treat others as you would have or even thinking through the seven habits of an effective leader, effective people, Stephen Covey's book, Seek to Understand Before Being Understood. Seek to understand where somebody's at before you charge in there and tell them they're wrong. Right? Now, a leader's personality can be of concern, but don't throw him or her under the bus 
or how he or she is wired. Get to know, have a relationship with this individual. Because, you know what? We're all flawed people with quirks, opinions, and interesting personalities. You too? so crucial for leaders and followers to display and demonstrate. And just so you know, I am not preaching this sermon to get anywhere, to go anywhere. It's not because something has happened and I need to, you know, da-da-da. I'm not doing that. I chose this Korah about 12 weeks ago just because it's a very interesting study. So please understand. I'm not trying to get anybody pointing my finger, those sorts of things. As I talk about humility for leaders, for me, rarely will you hear me say, the Lord told me. I'm not saying you can't, but I, I rarely, rarely use that. I might say, I think it might be better to say, I think the Lord wants us to. That may be a better approach to it, rather than thus saith the Lord, because I'm not a prophet. I'm not Isaiah. I'm not Jeremiah. And God has spoken directly to me or getting it written down for me or anybody else. I think the Lord is, is directing us to. And I, I'm very grateful for Pastor Elisha and Nicole and Kay and Todd, and the brothers on the elder and the deacon team. We work hard to be in agreement with the decisions we sense the Lord is leading us to present to you and ask you about and to implement with the majestic body. But I do know this. We as leaders are not always right, like you are not. We're not always right, and you're not always right. We try. We try to be as right as we can. We try to do the right things, of course. Most people I know try to do the best they can do in the moment. Now, there are people that don't do that, okay? We understand that. But most people, like you and me, we try to do the right thing at the right time. I recently had contact with a pastor friend of mine who lamented a decision he had made and how he made it because it was costly to him and his church in terms of people leaving the church because they struggled with the decision that he made. But my friend was so humble he wrote a public article about it. And if you want to read it, I can tell you where to find it. It's available. And it details the things he has learned through this difficult experience. It's one of the most moving articles I've ever read. One, because I know him, and I know his church really well. He's just humble. He writes this article about a, a decision that, that just didn't go well. It reveals his soul and, and what, he, what he could have done and how he could have handled it differently. And it was costly to him as a pastor. When people leave your church because of a decision they don't agree with hurts like crazy. But he took the high road, the humble road. That's a good way to put it, right? The high road, the humble road, and said, I could have done things differently. And I can give you examples from my life when I made mistakes and it was costly. And I had to humble myself.
myself. best we know how, and sometimes pride gets in the way, and I'm going to charge through it, I'm going to make this happen, sometimes it's not the best. Third, the Lord doesn't take kindly to our objecting to His way. The Lord doesn't take kindly to our objecting to His ways. Again, Exodus chapter 3, God divinely appoints Moses to lead the people. Moses doesn't want to do it. But God said, you're the man. I'll give you Aaron as your right-hand man to help you out. But you're the man. You can do this. And Korah and his entourage do not like that fact. You've gone too far, verse 3. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? <laughs> Moses is probably going, I didn't want this job anyway. <laughs> God, God called me. God, he put me in here. I'm not trying to brag. He's not trying to brag. He's just stating the fact. I was appointed by God, and I have to do what he called me to do. You see, their, their gripe, as you read this chapter, their gripe wasn't against Moses, even though he was the figurehead of it. Their gripe really was against God for what God did and put him in this position. They were not happy with that because they felt like there was a you back to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24, Saul's chasing David, which he did a lot. King Saul is chasing David. David is hiding in a cave, and Saul comes in, as the Bible says, to relieve himself. Just kind of states it the way it is, right? While they're in that cave, David's men go. Here's your chance, dude. Take him out. He's been mean to you. He's been after you. You can take him out. God's provided this opportunity to take him out. David walks up, cuts off a little bit of his robe, goes back. Men are encouraging him on. Take him out. Says to him. David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart is struck. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. What respect. To a guy who's after him, who's trying to kill him. Tries to pin him against the wall with his spear while David's ministering to him, playing for him can't do it. It's the Lord's anointing. I have to respect him, even though he's treating me wrong. Man, that's a good, good lesson. Now, this is what it says in Numbers 12, verse 3. Now, it's very interesting. If Moses wrote the first five books, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he writes this about himself. Now, the man Moses was very humble more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. Some of you get it, right? If Moses wrote that, he's writing about himself. He's writing an autobiography about himself. 
And we could say, oh my goodness, well then he's not humble. That's what he writes about himself. Or we can say, God led him to write that about himself. I'll take the second. But Moses is a very humble man. He's getting challenged, pushed again, because of what God set him up to do as the leader of the people. Now you read this passage, and, and we all understand that now judgment may seem harsh and even a little wild, but it points out to us that the Lord takes sin, our sin seriously. He hates our sin. And he hates it when we sin against him. And oh, that we would recognize more strongly, more vividly, and be more convicted and confessional regarding our sin. Okay? I'm sure that we would take our sin more strongly, more vividly if we saw with our own eyes what they saw. Their friends, their houses, and their families swallowed up into the ground. And later they saw their friends die by way of a plague. I'll guarantee you we would take our sin a little bit more seriously. Like if I knew some of you are out there sinning right now, and I walked out and I said, the Lord just takes you and you just die by a heart attack, I, God hadn't spoken. But if God does something supernatural and all of a sudden this floor opened up and you went down into the hill, I guess you'd all, we'd all go, yeah, oh boy. God does take sin very seriously. Right? It would impact you. It would impact you, friends. Four. Grumbling is dangerous. Moses, being a witness to this terrible incident, writes in verse 11, Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And in verse 41 we read, But on that day all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You've killed the people of the Lord. That's after what took place here. <laughs> Think about it. I didn't read the rest of the chapter, but... The rest of the chapter goes on and says, The next day they came and they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And I'm thinking, you saw all your friends die like that and you still feel the same way. You're still grumbling about it. You should be coming back going, Lord, whoa, we want to honor you. We want to lift you high. We want to exalt you. I, I like how the Lord confronted the people. In Moses, as he go in verse 4, and in verse 9, and in verse 11, and in verse 15, and in verse 42, you can look at all these verses. And what does Moses do? The Lord, Moses goes to the Lord. He doesn't try to defend themselves. He says, I was appointed. It's in Exodus chapter 3. Well, they didn't have Exodus chapter 3 then, okay? But I was appointed by the Lord. I, I, was, I was there at the burning bush. Don't you understand? He doesn't do that. He just keeps going to the Lord. Say, Lord, you handle this. You take care of it. You do what's right in your eyes. Verse 42, And when the congregation assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting where God's presence dwelled. And behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. You know, Moses is just going, Hey, you want to take on this? Just take it on with the Lord. That's really good. Really good thinking. He's kind of saying this. Go ahead. Try to take on my servants. God's saying this. Go ahead, try to take out my servants. You have to go through me to get to them. Philippians 2.14, I remind you, says this. 
like just as I am right now, we can all come to the front because we all struggle with grumbling and complaining. Well, maybe not all of you, but probably most of us do, right? It's easy to do. But Paul says we should do all things without grumbling and complaining. And I know I'm, I'm really good at it. I'm pretty much a professional at grumbling and complaining. Fourth, or fifth, it takes grace and humility to serve the Lord under the authority of a godly leader. Or who you work with. I mean, that may not be godly, but it takes grace and humility to work under the authority of someone. I've recognized over the past five years especially how much grace and humility it takes to serve under someone. And, and I remind you that the first 19, almost 20 years of my ministry career, I was an associate pastor and youth pastor. I was serving under a pastor. But it's really dawned on me how much grace and humility it takes to serve under him. I know I didn't do it right all the time. I remember my last church, Pastor Thane came to me. He was a great, he was a great friend and a great pastor. Been a wonderful seven years together. But I remember when he came to me and he said he wanted me to step out of the youth pastor position and become the associate pastor. And I did not want to do that. I did not want to do that. I let him know it was not my desire. I did it. I treated him as I would want to be treated. I told him, I, I don't see God doing that. But you are my pastor. And if you feel this is what we need to do, God leading you to do that, I'll do it. You know what? It's very beneficial. Very helpful. It gave me experience that helped me to come into this service as a lead pastor. And I need it. Both James and Peter remind us of this. God opposes the proud. But what? Gives grace opposes the proud. He opposed the proud here. Korah, Dathan, Byron. And he gives grace to those who are humble. Next. Be thankful to serve the Lord in whatever position serve he's granted to you and gifted you for. Moses says to these, these guys, he says, Is it too small a thank you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in tabernacle of the Lord and stand before the congregation and minister to them and that he has brought near to him and all you brothers and sons of Levi? He's saying, God has given you a gift. God has he's authorized you to serve in this way. Isn't, isn't that good enough? Shouldn't you be all right? Shouldn't you be content in that? Yes, you should be content in that because that's the serve God has for you. You have a very special serve to handle the tabernacle and its furnishings. And you should be satisfied with the serve the Lord has given you, not claim a right to be a part of the priesthood. Now, I know this. Most of you, most people are not pining, are not yearning to be a pastor. You know why? Because you're not a pastor. <laughs> you're not yearning to be a pastor. But we can't have our opinions about decisions pastors make, of course. Understand that. 
And they wanted, they, they, they didn't want what God had given to them. They wanted something different. And God is saying through Moses, be satisfied, be content. This is the serve God has gifted you for, and he's led you into it, and he's authorized you to do it, just like he authorized me to do the serve I'm doing. Count that a privilege and a joy. And you know what? I see that here. I watch you. Do what needs to be done. It's so beautiful to watch. To see you take on the serves that are yours. In humility, take on those serves. And honor the Lord in those. And not to pine away for something else or for somebody else's position. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Last. God is fully holy, but he's also full of grace. And I, I, I read some of this, and this is what really got me into thinking about Korah and what took place. Let me explain. Yes, God acted in judgment to those who were trying to usurp, usurp his plan and leaders in number 16. But he also preserved a remnant of the family of Korah, as we know from reading about their serve in the tabernacle and noting the introductions to Psalm 42 through 49, Psalm 84, Psalm 85, Psalm 88, 7, and 88, 8. You can look at those psalms. You can see in the introductions that it says, by the sons of Korah. How about that? That God, even in his judgment, even in his judgment, he saved some of them, and they have words of scripture for us today. That's God's grace in the midst of his holiness. Now, we talked on Thursday, maybe those psalms were written before number 16, the incident number 16 happened. It's possible that they were written before this took place. If so, we see the Lord's grace in his preserving these inspired words for us even after a great sin against the Lord was committed. If they were written before, God could have said, you guys are out of here, man. I'm not, gonna, I'm not taking your words. We're not having any psalms about you because of what, what took place. If this is written after number 16, the, the event of number 16, it also speaks to the grace of God and the fact that some of the sons of Korah were preserved from the judgment, didn't pursue the sin of their father, and followed the Lord in the years to come. Isn't that awesome? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, of course, that's what he does for us all the time, too. We do something, you know, sinful, foolish. And God has, at times, judgment takes place. He speaks against us. Discipline takes place. And then he continues to extend his grace. Now, to finish up, let's turn to the Lord's Supper. I want to tie number 16 to 1 Corinthians 11. You know, this is the passage talking about as Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and he's, he's giving them some challenges. He's pointing out some things that they're not doing right when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper. He says some of them are coming and they have a love feast, they're eating together and some of them are, you know, just they're just chowing down the whole time, there's no respect. Some of them are, are coming and they're getting drunk while they're there. All those things are taking place. So, so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23, 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he's betrayed, he took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. I don't know I've ever concentrated on those verses when I'm talking to you about the Lord's Supper. But I'm tying it together with what happened in number 16. In number 16, what did they do? The, the people, Korah and his congregation, challenged God. and said, we want to do it our way. They sinned against God. And it was discipline that took place. Unfortunately, but it did. Paul says the same thing happens if we don't respect what God has done for us here as we celebrate. Now, I don't know any of you, or I've never known anybody who was weak or ill or died because they didn't respect the table of the Lord. Anybody know anybody like that? You, you probably don't. You probably don't. But Paul did. And if Paul did, I think we need to take it pretty serious. That this is really important. And we need to respect it properly. So the first thing is this. To take the Lord's Supper, you need to be a believer. You need to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because that's what it represents. What he's done for us. His death, his burial, his resurrection for us. And our believing. Our coming into relationship so I would encourage you, if you don't know Jesus right now, invite him into your life. Say yes to him. Admit to God you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for you. And confess your faith in him. Invite him to be a part of your life. Say yes to him. Because he wants to be a part of your life. That gives you the authority to be able to come and to take the bread and to take the cup to remember what he's done for you. The second thing I think that we need to do is we need to really respect this and honor this. doesn't mean we can't celebrate. I think we should celebrate. But we need to have respect for what Jesus has done for us. Be respectful and honoring awesome and amazing God that God provides so hard for us. Thirdly, we need to examine ourselves for sin. We shouldn't do this if there's sin in our lives. We shouldn't take it. We should confess those sins and get forgiveness before we would take the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to ask you to, to do that right now. 
just take a little bit of time. You go before the Lord. Meet Him as your Savior. Invite Him in. You need to kind of readjust your respect toward Him and what He's given. If there's sin that needs to be confessed, then just a moment I'll, I'll free you up and you can come and you have it gathered around the key elements to come. But just for a moment be quiet before him. Give him the honor that is due for what he has done for us. our sin to you, and you have brought forgiveness instead. Now may we be able to really truly understand the importance of what you have done, and what you have done for us, your body given for us, your blood shed for us. We do this with the greatest of respect and honor of who you are.